This broadcast of Moby Lives Radio is sponsored by Melville House Publishing, publishers of Articles of Impeachment Against George W. Bush by the Center for Constitutional Rights, in which some of the country's leading legal scholars spell out the legal argument for the impeachment of President Bush. Available in bookstores now or on the web at mhpbooks.com, where you can also have a copy sent to your congressman and Melville House will pay the postage. Intergalactic headquarters of Melville House Publishing in Hoboken, New Jersey, aka the left bank of New York City, it's Moby Lives Radio. Greetings, Earthlings. It's Saturday, the 4th of March in 2006. I'm Dennis Johnson. On today's show, we're going to hear from the two biggest troublemaking librarians in the country. First, we'll hear from radical librarian Jesmyn West about the Patriot Act. It's back from the dead and supposedly modified, but is it really? And we'll talk to Alan Cordell of Foetry.com about an ethics guideline recently released by a literary publishing group. It seems to be in response to ethics charges raised by Cordell on Foetry.com. But first... Here's a look at some news from the book world. Well, thousands of publishers and agents from around the world are descending on London this weekend to attend the London Book Fair. Unlike America's big book fair, the Book Expo America, the London Book Fair is mostly about rights sales. At the BEA, publishers are mostly introducing their upcoming publications to booksellers and the media, but publishers attend the LBF in hopes of selling rights to their upcoming books to other countries. The London Fair has become increasingly important as what has traditionally been the biggest book fair for rights. The Frankfurt Book Fair has simply become too expensive for most publishers to attend. In fact, London has become so popular that this year it was moved from West London's Olympia, where it had been held for years, to a bigger venue, the Excel Centre in East London's Docklands area. But even as it grows towards possibly supplanting Frankfurt as the year's biggest book shindig, a group of writers including Ian McEwen, J.M. Quetzi, Nadine Gordimer, Nick Hornby, Jan Martel, and others have lodged a protest against the organizers of the event, Reed Exhibitions, which is part of the Reed Selvier Group, which also organizes America's BEA and owns Publishers Weekly. The writers are protesting the fact that in addition to organizing some of the world's largest book fairs, Reed Selvier also organizes the world's biggest arms fairs. Last year, Reed organized the world's biggest arms fair, in fact, in the XL Center, where the book fair is taking place. Said the letter from the writers, quote, We call upon Reed Selvier to end its involvement in a dirty and damaging business, and we call upon our colleagues to encourage Reed Selvier to take the book trade out of the arms trade. Well, meanwhile, another group of writers has issued a statement condemning Islamic totalitarianism. That's a quote. In the wake of the violence surrounding the publications of cartoons depicting the Prophet Muhammad, Salman Rushdie, Bernard-Henri Lévy, exiled Iranian writer Chala Shafiq, and others issued a statement saying, quote, after having overcome fascism, Nazism and Stalinism, the world now faces a new global threat, Islamism, end quote. Uh, although the statement continued, quote, we writers, journalists, intellectuals, call for resistance to religious totalitarianism and for promotion of freedom, equal opportunity, and secular values for all. End quote. The statement was issued in the French weekly Charlie Hebdo, one of the several French publications that reprinted the cartoons and is now under armed guard. While the heaviosity continues, the American writing scene lost two major figures with the deaths of Frederick Bush and Octavia Butler being announced this week. Bush was a great novelist with an especially nice touch on writing historical fiction, including a wonderful novel about Herman Melville called The Night Inspector, 
Bush was also known for his novels Manual Labor and Rounds, but he was also well-known and beloved as a teacher of writers, teaching a class at Colgate University in upstate New York in which he focused on living writers, famously, bringing lots of contemporary writers to campus to talk about their work and the life. Bush taught at Colgate from 1966 until 2003. That's right. He'd only retired a couple of years ago before suffering a heart attack while visiting New York City with his wife last week. He was 64. This week also saw the passing of sci-fi writer Octavia Butler, but let me hasten to add that she was not writing sci-fi like uh, that of the Jetsons, as Tyler Cohen noted in a Slate Remembrance a couple of days ago. As Cohen put it, quote, Butler wrote about the psychology of how unusual creatures find their way in hostile worlds, close quote. Among Butler's 12 books, perhaps her best known were Kindred, and Blood Child, which won sci-fi's highest awards, the Nebula, and it also won a Hugo. Octavia Butler, who was also awarded a MacArthur Genius Grant, died of an apparent stroke at her home in Seattle, Washington. She was only 58 years old. Uh, back in London now, the trial against Random House, the publishers of the British edition of The Da Vinci Code, continued. They're being charged by the authors of a book called The Holy Blood and the Holy Grail with having stolen the architecture, uh, known in American publishing as uh, the idea, of the book for The Da Vinci Code. Uh, Michael Bajen and Richard Lee said they had told the same story in their 1982 nonfiction book. That is, that Jesus wasn't crucified. He snuck off with Mary Magdalene to where else? Paris. Well, that book was... Published by Random House 2, hmm, means Random House is suing Random House. The case is making a lot of people in Hollywood nervous. Meanwhile, if uh, Baijen and Lee win an injunction against using material from their book in The Da Vinci Code, well, it's curtains for the multi-million dollar movie of The Da Vinci Code starring Tom Hanks, which is set to open on May 19th which, by the way, is the same day that the producers of a pornographic film called The Da Vinci Load have announced as the release date for their film. According to a press release, the Tom Hanks character and their version is played by an actor named Sebastian Young, quote, a hot bad boy with a, well, this part is in brackets, remarkable appendage. Close bracket. <laughs> And finally, a British survey released Thursday, which was World Book Day, says readers prefer books with a happy ending. According to a Times of London report, no matter the age or gender of the reader, 41% of respondents to the poll said they prefer a book to have a happy ending, while only 2% said they like them sad. No word on what the remaining 57% like. Um, asked what happy ending they liked best, the top vote-getter was Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, in which, of course, Elizabeth Bennet hooks up with Mr. Darcy. A close runner-up was the ending of Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird. Meanwhile, asked what sad ending they would most like to see turned into a happy ending. The Times report says the majority of women felt that Tess of the D'Urbervilles would benefit from a happy ending while male respondents wished things had turned out better for Winston in George Orwell's 1984. And that's it for this week's news. I'm Dennis Johnson. It's Saturday, March 4th, and here's a look at the week ahead in literary history. Sunday is March 5th, and on that day in 1839, author Charlotte Bronte declined the marriage proposal of the Reverend Henry Nussey. The 23-year-old future author of Jane Eyre told him that, quote, he would find her romantic and eccentric and not practical enough to be a clergyman's wife. Monday, March 6th, marks the birthday in 1928 of Nobel laureate Gabriel Garcia Marquez. 
Perhaps best known for his novel, 100 Years of Solitude, Marguez's most recent novel is Memory of My Melancholy Whores, or less poetically translated, we are told, as Memories of My Sad Bitches. Tuesday is March 7th, and on that day in 1931, Donald Barthelme was born in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Perhaps best known for his short stories and his wild sense of humor, Barthelby published many story collections, among them his best known, Overnight to Many Distant Cities. And this Wednesday is March 8th, and March 8th in 1941 saw the freakish death of Sherwood Anderson, author of Winesburg, Ohio. Anderson died of peritonitis in Cologne, Panama, after swallowing a toothpick with his hors d'oeuvre at a cocktail party. Thursday is March 9th, and on that day in 1864, Ulysses S. Grant, author of what many consider to be one of the finest military memoirs, his candid and self-effacing personal memoirs, was commissioned as a lieutenant general by Abraham Lincoln and became the commander of all the Union armies. Grant wrote his personal memoirs at the urging of Mark Twain. At the time, Grant was dying from cancer and destitute. And with the help of Twain, the sale of his memoirs helped him to financially secure the future of his family. He died shortly after they were finished, but the memoirs did go on to become a huge success and indeed saved his family from poverty. Friday is March 10th, and on the 10th back in 1926, the first Book of the Month Club selection was published, Lolly Willows or The Loving Huntsman by English novelist Sylvia Townsend Warner about a widow who scandalizes her relations by becoming involved in witchcraft. The 4,000-plus Book of the Month Club members were not pleased with the selection. And Saturday is March 11th, and on that day in 1818, Frankenstein by 21-year-old Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley is published. The book was written in a white heat inspired by Byron's reading of Samuel Teller Coleridge's long poem Christabel, to both she and her husband, Percy Bysshe Shelley, as they vacationed with Lord Byron on the shores of Lake Geneva. And I'm Valerie Marians, and that's this week in literary history. I know my chicken. You got to know you a chicken. I know my chicken. You got to know you a chicken. Jessamine West is on the line. Jessamine, welcome back to Mobiliz Radio. Thank you. Jessamine is, uh, is speaking to us today from Bethel, Vermont. Um, and our listeners may remember that she is uh, the radical librarian putting the Raren back in librarian. We're going to talk about the Patriot Act. Uh, Jessamine was unfortunately once again uh, given a reprieve by the, uh, the Senate yesterday, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, it certainly was. I mean... Not not entirely. Basically, the two parts of the act, one of which that librarians care about the most, Section 215, were given basically four more years. Mm-hmm. Um, and the rest of it was just sort of signed back on with some changes, but not, not many major ones, just indefinitely. There was a lot of the Patriot Act originally that sunsetted, mm-hmm. that had built-in mm-hmm. um, expiration dates on the various sections. And this made a lot of the sunsetting. I mean, there were parts that sunsetted in December, and then they got these little extensions as everybody argued over it. Mm -hmm. And now a lot of it's been sort of codified into long-term non-sunsetting legislation. Well, to to clarify for some of our readers, we actually reported that the Patriot Act was dead uh, a couple of months ago on on Mobilist Radio because it seemed to be, and that's what the headlines were reading, and then it came back despite um, a long filibuster by Senator Feingold, who was the only senator to vote against the original Patriot Act in the days after 9-11, he was overcome, I guess. His his filibuster was broken down, and it was uh, an 89-10 to vote, a a very convincing vote. after after thinking that it was convincingly dead, were, were you surprised? No, I was I was surprised. I mean, I think I was surprised at the numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, in Vermont, uh, the Vermont Library Association had heavily lobbied um, both Leahy and um, Senators Leahy and Jeffords um, 
Leahy was on the on the committee that was working on the compromise, and it was unclear um, whether he was going to, after putting in that work to help build a sort of a compromise bill, whether he was going to then vote for it or vote against it. And I was a little surprised, pleasantly so, that he voted against it. And I like to think maybe you know we had something to do with that, the librarians. But there's a there's a huge difference of opinion with the Patriot Act mm-hmm. whether. The entire thing needs to go out the window, mm-hmm. or whether libraries need to mostly focus on the parts that affect libraries. And a lot of that was made a lot more specific, um, not necessarily in ways that affect the outcome, but for instance, um, wording was put into the bill to make very, very specific that they're not talking about asking information about what you read. They're mostly concerned with the library's role as an Internet service provider and providing access to the Internet. Uh That's a dramatic change, whether it's a change that matters. I mean, there's still huge privacy implications. There's still many, many uh, sort of issues with with what's left. But a lot of this sort of chest-beating, it's nobody's business what you read, that's going to take the wind out of the sails of that argument. I think there's still very compelling arguments to be made why this poses serious privacy risks in libraries and all over the place. But a lot of the rest of the Patriot Act has different law enforcement issues like, you know, you know figuring out how to make the agents that go into creating methamphetamine more illegal, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And th- there's real difference of opinion about whether librarians need to care about wiretapping and methamphetamines. I mean, I would argue that I think we should be concerned with civil liberties generally. Yeah. But I know that on the ALA council list, even even this morning, uh, nobody had really... There was a, a couple people speaking up saying we should throw out the Patriot Act entirely, and ALA's stance has been weakened by not doing a full court press, mm-hmm. basically. And others who said, look, we really need to you know we 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 have limited resources and we really need to focus on the things that affect our our members and our constituents directly this is a discussion going on at the website of the uh, the ALA the um, on Library the mailing Services. list of the ALA council which is open to the public though a little a little difficult to find sometimes uh-huh, uh-huh. but i posted something saying i really wished that ALA's opposition michael gorman did issue a statement that i thought was that i thought was fairly good but it by this morning it was a little buried on the on the website, and mm-hmm. so you had to go to the ALA Washington office site, which, once again, had really good information, but nothing front page. Mm-hmm. And I would think since we had made, we ALA and we librarians, had made such a big deal about how important this was, that the fact that a lot of, that we were going to have at least four more years of Section 215 in a slightly altered state was a big deal. Yeah. The Washington office is framing this as, sort of a moderate defeat except with an overall sort of winning of the war. The president's approval ratings are way, way down. And just the fact that the Patriot Act took such a beating, especially Section 215, which only got four more years compared to a lot of the rest of it, there's a glimmer of hope. Well, how how big a beating did it did it take? What does this actually mean? The the revised version of Section 215. What does this mean to you as a librarian? What 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 can people uh what happens to people that come into the library now and want to use the computer? Well, what happens is pretty much the same for using the computer as near as I can tell. And granted, I've been just sort of reading the the compromise legislation, you know, this morning and yesterday. Um, as far as using the computer, things haven't changed too much as mm-hmm. near as I can tell. Um, government agents can come into the library looking for library records if it's something that they need for the in the course of an ongoing investigation i believe i'm a little iffy on a lot of the language here uh-huh. but essentially they can come in and say we need to see what's on your computers and your sign up records or what have you mm-hmm. because you're acting as an internet service provider essentially mm-hmm. um and get information on what websites people have been surfing if they log in with their library cards and whatnot perhaps you know that link up but the reading material, reading list, circulation records are theoretically exempted from this sort of broad ability to come in and request information. And once again, that's um, got to be court approved through a FISA court. Um, well, we know how much the government likes the FISA court. Well, exactly right. There's there's not a lot of 
not a lot of oversight. It's very difficult to determine sort of what grounds they have for uh, their various sort of explorations. I believe there's language in the amended Patriot Act that does say, oh gosh, and, and I'm not entirely sure again, but the director of the FBI is the one that actually has to sign off on more more invasive um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. more invasive intrusion into sort of library record keeping and i you know i believe that was a success with sort of lobbying by the ala and others to make sure that language that was fuzzy in the patriot act which didn't even talk about libraries specifically became codified to specifically exclude libraries in some places mm-hmm. and specifically include them in other places mm-hmm. so we've got clearer language but i really don't think that's a good reason to jump up and down. I mean, we also have lots of language about sort of pen traps and wiretaps and other things that could affect libraries, but everybody in America is grappling with this problem, you know, every business, not just libraries in specific. What was the first thing you said there, pen traps? Pen traps. What is that? Um, Well, pen traps isn't exactly what they use now, but it's mostly key traps, but basically what could happen, and once again, I'm aware that this is sort of an oogie-boogie future nightmare scenario. Um, I'm not totally paranoid, but I do like to think about what might happen. Theoretically, someone could come into your library, say, we need this computer in the course of an ongoing investigation, mm-hmm. install key trapping software on it, which would basically monitor um, you know, what people are typing into the computer, and this could include sensitive information like credit cards and passwords, mm-hmm. um, in addition to sort of content of emails and whatnot. And they could do that without informing the library, the patron, or what have you. And one of the things that people have been really critical about with the Patriot Act generally is you may think there's a bad person at the library, and then you can, in order to sort of gain intelligence on that person, you can be very overbroad in your search so that everybody who uses the computer or in another part of the Patriot Act, the pay telephone that that person uses is subject to the same kind of surveillance, which... I believe many civil libertarians feel is inappropriate. Well, I have to point out that this sounds remarkably like the case against the Bush administration for the NSA surveillance, which many suspect of having been a similar data mining campaign controlled by FISA, which the administration now says it is not bound by. Well, you sort of suspect they're trying to go after the same goals in many sort of legal ways. Mm -hmm. I mean, you kind of suspect that they want to do what they want to do, and they would like to have some degree of legal legitimacy that they'll try and track down any any way they want. I mean, I think having, um, you know, senatorial watchdogs like Feingold and to a lesser degree Leahy um, and others on the committee that was helping revamp the Patriot Act did mean that more shifty stuff wasn't snuck in. Mm-hmm. But again, it's it's tiny, tiny things mm-hmm. to be thankful for. We're just trying to be a little positive. And yeah. in four more years, theoretically, we could have another administration and maybe another go at at least part of this law. But, I mean, the weird thing about law is, like any law, it's only in force until somebody decides either it's extra legal or they make another law. Right. And so while I'm very upset about this, I also, you know, in August 2001, we didn't have it. In October, we did. (laughs) And so I could see a future world in which which we didn't have it as well. And I think it's important to be vigilant and pay attention. I mean, I know it's the top of my reading list this week. Yeah. And and just to clarify, really what 215 is talking about now is not coming in and finding out what books people have been borrowing but this is that part has, is the part that has been eradicated. That's that's the claim. In fact, it hasn't been eradicated. There's specific language that's put into an amendment to the legislation that passed that said we're not talking about circulation records mm-hmm. and reading lists mm-hmm. and whatnot, which you kind of get the feeling is saying, okay, librarians, <laughs> get off our back. Yeah, yeah. While at the same time, a lot of the same uh, privacy issues in other parts of the library are still just as just as circumstantial and just as troubling. It's yeah. just not quite as easy pressed for ALA to say, well, they're looking at what you read. They'll have to be a little bit more, you know, explanatory about what, what this actually means. 
And is there any kind of ongoing campaign now to continue to oppose the Patriot Act, or is that it? Is the ALA going to continue to do anything? Well, I think the ALA Washington do? office and the um, Office of Intellectual Freedom are both, you know, this is a continual struggle for them in general because it affects intellectual freedom and because it affects lobbying and legislation, which is sort of what the Washington office concerns themselves with. You know, I think they're both really on top of it. I think on council with the ALA governing body, there's there's some concern about what might have been, what we have done in the past. I mean, we did come out with a resolution opposing Section 215 that some people felt didn't go far enough. But I don't think, I don't think anybody's going to say, oh, that's it. Yeah, and yeah. and wander off. I just think they're going to have to take a close look, back up, think of a new strategy, and then move forward. I mean, we're not arguing with Ashcroft anymore, mm-hmm. who was kind of a, you know, kind of a sitting duck oddball who, you know, he was digging his own hole every time he opened his mouth talking about the Patriot Act. Gonzalez is a little, not quite as much of a showman, and so as a result, he's not making as many mistakes as a result he needs to be approached differently than Ashcroft, who you kind of felt like you could poke his buttons enough and he'd kind of, bleh. <laughs> That's how I felt anyhow. But well, I also thought he was sort of savvier than Gonzalez, who I feel like is newer and, you know, kind of, his his job seems to be to put a friendlier face, if that's possible, on the Department of Justice, doing sort of dog and pony shows, talking about these laws that they're, you know, I mean, Gonzalez well, spends much more placid, doesn't he? In, in yeah, well, and he spends a lot of time. I mean, you know, both defending what he said about torture, which I think is a awkward position for him and very hard to defend, considering mm-hmm. what he said and done in the past. But also, like going to colleges and talking about how you know, copying music, downloading music is stealing. Mm-hmm. And while I, you know, understand and appreciate copyright and intellectual property issues we seem to have more pressing problems than sort of defending the property interests of, you know, big big music and big music and video publishers. So it I don't know who determines his agenda and how much the Patriot Act is gonna play into that in the coming months. Well, Jessamine West speaking to us from an actual library in Bethel, Vermont. Thank you once again for coming on Mobiliz Radio. Sure, thank you very much for having me. Took for my best friend Some joker got lucky Stole her back again He better come on In my kitchen It's fun to be ready I do For a woman I know Took for my best friend Some joker got lucky Alan Cordell on the line, the proprietor of Foetry.com. Alan, welcome back to Mobiliz Radio. Thanks for having me back. We uh, have had you on the program before kind of talking about uh, the history of what you've been up to with Foetry, and um, uh, after a couple of years of uh, very sincere troublemaking on your part, it seems that there is some response to the workings of Foetry.com. I'm referring here now to um, some guidelines that have been issued by the Council of Literary Magazines and Presses. Uh, First of all, why don't you identify for our readers what I'm talking about? What is is these guidelines that have been issued? Well, I believe it was um, midway through last year they decided to invite different participating publishers who run literary contests to participate in a chat session online, so it was a, a sort of a virtual roundtable, and to discuss some of the issues related to contests. And then at the end of that, they decided to issue sort of a, a CLMP official 
set of guidelines, ethical guidelines for contests. And now, in the last couple of months, I've seen quite a few presses that say they abide by those guidelines. Okay, and I should identify for our listeners that the Council of Literary Magazines and Presses is uh, an outstanding organization of small and independent publishers. Um, uh, lots of your favorite poetry publishers, as well as your uh, uh, houses publishing political works and fiction and things like that, are, are members. And um, many of the, the uh, publishers that you have challenged for running corrupt um, uh, poetry contests and prizes are members of the council, and uh, and and so we think you think that uh, some of what's going on is a response to the workings of Poetry.com. Um, how what what about these guidelines makes you think they are a response to what's going on in poetry? Well, I purchased from CLMP. They had a very reasonable price to purchase the transcript of the virtual roundtable. It's about 18 pages long, mm-hmm. and I think they charged me $3, which I was very happy to pay, because mm-hmm. I do admire quite a, a bit of what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, when I started reading through the guidelines, or, the, or through the discussion, and I saw the people who were participating were people like Janet Holmes, who runs the Sawtooth Poetry Prize, mm-hmm. and Stephanie G. Schwind at um, Colorado State. Um, those are both presses that have changed their guidelines substantially since Poetry launched because they had had problems in the past. Now, were, were all three of them? I know you, uh, you you had your back and forth with Janet Holmes. Were the others uh, people that you uh, you studied on Poetry.com as well? Um, yes, and and some of the other people that whose names might be familiar to Poetry followers are uh, John Castine the Fourth and Ted Genoways, who are both at Virginia Quarterly Review. Mm-hmm. They participated as well, and Jeffrey Levine from Tupelo Press, who I've actually um, applauded on the site for having such strong guidelines, but unfortunately in this discussion he wasn't as opinionated as his own press seems to to have um, strong guidelines, but he didn't speak up very much during the the process of getting sort of a, an overall set of guidelines for, for presses and for contests. So all of these people were part of this uh, virtual roundtable discussion, and, yeah. and, and the guidelines were, were simply, was it an actual document that they co-wrote, or is it just a, a transcript of the, of the roundtable? Well, um, what I first purchased was a trans- transcript of the roundtable, and then I don't know what happened in between the transcript and the actual production of the statement. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if they continued to be involved by email after that or, or how they did that, but eventually CLMP issued a statement, and now it's been adopted by quite a few different contests. Mm-hmm. And I could read that to you. It's pretty short. Sure. Um, CLMP's Community of Independent Literary Publishers believes that ethical contests serve our shared goal to connect writers and readers by publishing exceptional writing. We believe that intent to act ethically, clarity of guidelines, and transparency of process form the foundation of an ethical contest. To that end, we agree to, one, conduct our contest as ethically as possible, and to address any unethical behavior on the part of our readers, judges, or editors. Two, to provide clear and specific contest guidelines, defining conflict of interest for all parties involved, and, Three, to make the mechanics of our selection process available to the public. This code recognizes that different contest models produce different results, but that each model can be run ethically. We have adopted this code to reinforce our integrity and dedication as a publishing community and to ensure that our contests contribute to a vibrant literary heritage. So that's the statement that I'm seeing on a lot of different websites now. Well, well, so far that sounds like a very noble statement. I have no problems with the statement itself, mm-hmm. except that I think it doesn't go far enough. Okay. What are your hesitations? Well, um, my main concern is, where is the simple statement that says, students and friends of the judge are not eligible to enter or win? Mm-hmm. That seems like a very basic statement that's been discussed on poetry, mm-hmm. um, you know, in the past two years, and is something that's generally agreed upon in all other kinds of contests throughout 
America. Um, and in fact, I would say that it's probably illegal for uh, friends and students of the judge to enter and win a contest. So I don't understand why that wasn't included in the guidelines. Mm -hmm. in, in the roundtable discussion, were such uh, direct kinds of rules discussed at all? Well, yeah, and it's interesting when I'm, I'm shuffling through the pages right now, um, some of the people had some very strong opinions that seemed to have just gotten brushed aside. But then some people, like John Castine IV, the one from Virginia Quarterly, um, he, he says things that just kind of raise a red flag for me. Or it, it, He says things like, I don't believe, I don't think there's been any substantial reason to believe people have been dishonest. And then he goes on later to say things like, I don't agree that all former students should be barred. And um, I think we should demonstrate that some former students have been picked blind on the merits of the work. Well, that's, that's all well and good. And, and John Castine IV and I, um, well, I should give you some background on him. He is the son of the president of University of Virginia, and he's an Iowa graduate. And I think maybe there's some elements of privilege in his position, in his situation that just makes it impossible for him to understand how that could be a problem for people looking from the outside. Well, that's a little speculative, but I think one thing that was established, uh, thanks to Poetry.com, was the existence of the so-called uh, Jory Graham rule, yes. <laughs> which speaks rather directly to what you're talking about, and I'm wondering if that was a part of the roundtable discussion at all. Well, of course, they never used the phrase Jory Graham rule. Not on the record, I'm sure. No. <laughs> but um, I, I feel comfortable saying it because that's what people call it. And, yeah, I believe that a few people did bring that up as, as uh, something that should be included. And then when it finally got down to the statement that they issued and that people have started to adopt, it's not there. And, yeah. and that, that troubles me because... So something happened between the roundtable discussion and the issuance of the so-called guidelines. Right. And I would, like, I would like to know what happened in that time period in between. And now what troubles me the most is seeing all these contests adopt this set of guidelines, which to me is, is so wishy-washy as to be sort of irrelevant. Mm -hmm. it, it, all it's doing is um, making it look like that there is... Um, just a, a hmm. it, it's a willingness to act like there is concern about ethics, but to not really do anything about it. Mm -hmm. And and that's embodied in the fact that they have a kind of a, a vague, almost like a mission statement as as their their guidelines. They're not actual guidelines. It's just we we intend to be good, as right. opposed to a listing of uh, this is unacceptable and that is unacceptable. Right. Okay. And, and I'll give you an example. Um, Janet Holmes, again, um, from Asanta Press, um, she says at one point that all the presses that adopt this, this set of guidelines could link back to CLMP to say, hey, we've adopted it, and it's sort of a good housekeeping seal of approval. Uh -huh. That's her terminology. Uh -huh. And, well, her contest, for example, she does have a Jory Graham rule. She, she no longer allows the friends and former students of the judge to, to enter and win. And she, she states that explicitly. She does. So However, she is still personally screening every single entry, she says at least. Uh -huh. and, and what's wrong with that? I think that's problematic because she is well-connected and she is allowing her own friends and, um, I don't know about former students, but her own friends to be in that pool of finalists. Mm -hmm. And I think that opens her contest up for further problems. But at some point, doesn't it always still come down to um, a judge or a prejudge or a screener of some sort, the, the honesty of that individual in declaring that they do or don't know uh, the author of a given manuscript? Yeah, and I think that that's definitely changing. There's still um, contests that are having some problems with that, but I think... But, but my question to you is, is isn't that unavoidable to a degree. That the final judge would know someone? Well, or that it comes down to the honesty of that judge oh, yes. telling you. And, and, and isn't this always going to be the, the, the weakness in the system? Yes, and hopefully now they're on alert enough that they will be honest about 
their conflicts of interest or perceived conflicts of interest. And I think they even discussed in this uh, roundtable that they might ask their judges to sign an ethics statement, too, which I think is long overdue. Uh-huh. But I don't know if that was codified in any way. So, and, and what, what does that accomplish to have a judge sign a statement like that? Well, I guess that it would give entrants the assurance that their manuscript was treated fairly and equally mm-hmm. to the other entrants. Mm-hmm. And by eliminating any potential conflicts of interest, the other, ju- the other manuscripts are being judged solely on artistic merit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let's shift a little here. I want to ask you where this uh, set of guidelines, is, this, the reaction that it represents, where is that coming from? Now, it seems to me that over the last two years, you've kept, kicked up quite a storm in the, in the poetry world, at least in the academic poetry world. In particular, there was all your research uncovering uh, what the Jory Graham rule actually and literally is. You uncovered all kinds of conflicts with her judging of, I believe it was the 2000 uh, uh, Poetry Prize from the Georgia uh, University of Georgia Press. Yes. And um, uncovering the fact that the winner of the award that year when she was the judge was the man who she was living with and shortly thereafter married. Um, and um, it was quite a bit, to refresh our, mem- our readers' memories, our listeners' memories, it was quite a bit of research involved, uh, Freedom of Information Act documents released, and, uh, and lo and behold, um, you, uh, you got the goods on the contest. There were resignations, <laughs> there, were, there were articles in, in the New York Times and elsewhere, and, uh, and now we have, uh, what, uh, eight months, a year later, this issuance of guidelines. Uh, how responsible do you feel? Well, I, I know that there was talk even at the time they were about to have the roundtable that I should or should not be included. And, and that was because I found out about the roundtable just before it happened and I asked to be included. Uh-huh. But the um, director of the CLMP said no. And I, and I understand his reasoning. He wanted members to be a part of it. And he sense. did offer me a chance to participate in some other way in the future, but has mm-hmm. never followed up on that, and I have not either. Uh-huh. But um, I, I think that Poetry.com, and I, I can't take personal credit for all that, because like what you're saying with the Georgia contest, there were other people involved in getting the, the records, and people on the site were the ones that informed me that Peter Sachs was Jory Graham's husband. I didn't know that. I knew they were colleagues. Let's say you were the enabler of, <laughs> of a lot of this. I mean, I, I don't think anyone would argue that that, uh, that uncovering came about because of your website. Yeah, I, I think, you know, definitely I pushed it until, until things started happening. And I'm happy to see this as a start, but I don't want this to be adopted as, as kind of the ending and the solution to everything. Mm-hmm. I'd like to see something like Associated Writing Programs or um, the Academy of American Poets. Why aren't any of those organizations speaking out and saying, hey, we need to have a set of guidelines, we need to have rules and follow them? Do you think that's a possibility? Will they speak out? Uh, you know, they haven't yet, and they certainly know about it. Mm-hmm. I, I, think, um, I think they don't want to antagonize any of their their precious poets i don't i think they don't want to um, piss off the people that give them money Mm -hmm. and but i think it's sad because something like awp which is specifically academic you know if this were plagiarism which i think it's pretty comparable to people would be thrown out of school Mm -hmm. um I don't understand why Associated Writing Programs keep, keeps having ethics sessions at their conferences but won't actually do something about it. Mm-hmm. And their conference is coming up in about a week, so this is a call out publicly to say, hey, someone at AWP needs to say something and, and do something publicly. Mm-hmm. What specifically beyond uh, the rule that there should be no... Um, uh, friends or relatives or family members of the of a judge uh, involved in the poetry contest. What other specific rules would you add to uh, such guidelines? Well, one thing that I'm, I've seen a few contests do is identify 
conflicts of interest with screeners mm -hmm. because most of these contests are not using the final judge to read 600 manuscripts or 1,000 manuscripts. They're giving the final judge about 10. Mm -hmm. So someone is having to read these manuscripts and forward them to the, the finalists, to the judge. Mm -hmm. And I think if a screener recognizes a friend's manuscript, it should be passed on to a different screener. Okay, so there should be rules for screeners as well. Although, yeah. uh, whenever I've judged a contest, uh, or, or been a screener more often for a contest, uh, such as I was uh, a screener a few times for the Drew Hines uh, Prize for short <laughs> stories uh, at the University of Pittsburgh Press, um, we were encouraged to do exactly that. Not that it was, uh, I recall getting it as a written guideline, but I was certainly instructed to do that. Isn't, isn't that fairly typical for, uh, for any kind of contest to be telling that to screeners? I, I don't think so, because you see so many times where, in the past at least, where the judge has picked their own friend or former student, mm -hmm. and I think the reason for that is because the screeners are instructed to... to sort through the manuscripts and find those people that the judge might want to see. And so it may not be the screener's friend, but it, there might be a stage in there where the screeners are sort of used as tools to, mm -hmm. to get rid of some of the manuscripts. Mm -hmm. And in fact, one person who was recently on the Foetry's, um, um, Foetry's site podcast said that Jory Graham told him specifically that most of the manuscripts in, in contests were thrown out unseen, unread. Mm -hmm. So, in conclusion, Alan, I, I trust there's not going to be a Foetry.com Poetry Prize anytime in the near future. <laughs> I, you know, I'm not opposed to contests. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, I have kind of toyed with the idea of a contest recently, but I think it would be under so much scrutiny that I'm a little afraid to do it at this <laughs> point. <laughs> I, I feel a little overwhelmed. But I, if I did decide to do one, I would certainly get an attorney's input mm -hmm. and just say, hey, would you look over my, my guidelines and see if they look on the up and up? Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that the CLMP missed out and had a chance to do, and I think they should still think about that. Well, maybe they will at, at your urging. And uh, I, know, I know, you know, on Monday morning I'm going to get the world of email criticizing <laughs> me for, for speaking with you. Um, typically in my, in my email box, you're referred to as Satan. <laughs> but um, I, I also know that you've got a hell of a large following still at Foetry.com, and I think these guidelines speak to something of your influence. I'm sure you'll be keeping an eye on them and, uh, and letting them know you weren't satisfied. I'm going to try. All right, Alan, it's always a pleasure to have you on Mobiliz Radio. Thanks for coming on. And thank you very much. I really like to talk with you. And that's the show for this week. Thanks to both our guests, who, by the way, both were speaking to us from libraries. Jasmine West spoke to us from a library in Bethel, Vermont, and Alan Cordell was speaking to us from a library in Portland, Oregon. I should point out, both librarians were speaking on their own time and on our dime. And while I'm doling out all the thanks, thanks to Andrew Steinmetz, our engineer, Becky Kramer, Kelly Burdick, and Valerie Marion, the publisher here at Melville House. We'll be back next week. We certainly hope you will. And in the meantime, we hope you'll also remember one thing. That whale is out there, man. <laughs>